Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, along with my producer, Lindsay, and we are streaming live from downtown Spokane, Washington, actually Spokane Valley, Washington today. It is beautiful and hot. Maybe it's even hotter than it is in Arizona, where Dr. Lee is today. It is supposed to hit close to 100 today, where I am from. Um, probably going to be, what, 115 today in Tucson today, Dr. Lee? Oh, I don't think we'll hit that high, Sean. I think probably closer to where you are, maybe 100, maybe 95. All right. All right. So I want to introduce Dr. Lee really quick, and then I can have her uh, introduce um, herself also. She is has an amazing credentials. I can't remember everything on her resume. But she's going to talk to you really about how she's an author. She's written books on um, hormones and preventive health care. She runs a practice down, a thriving practice down in uh, Tucson, Arizona. I had the privilege of actually meeting her uh, last month, and it was just a wonderful conversation that I had with her. Um, I feel so honored to be able to meet her. And she's going to talk a little bit about that. But really, what I really wanted to focus on, <clears throat> excuse me, is how she transformed from a doctor that specializes in hormones to a, a physician that um, does frontline treatment of COVID patients and has written a book or a, a paper along with Dr. Dr. Peter McCullough. You guys may have heard about him. He's been in the news a lot lately uh, regarding um, COVID and early home treatment. So Dr. Lee, why don't you tell us how that transition happened from hormones to COVID? <laughs> well, thank thank you, Sean. Yeah, yes, it it actually is is quite quite a story because that was not on my radar, certainly not in my plans. And I've I've loved my work in men's health, women's health, looking at the changes in our endocrine or hormone system from puberty to late life. I've worked with people of all ages, looking at the ways in which hormone imbalance for men and women can create many health problems and lead to diabetes, um, metabolic syndrome, dementia, depression, obesity, and many, many other serious chronic medical problems that fundamentally are aggravated or triggered by changes in our uh, gonadal hormones in particular, people have heard a lot about the thyroid, but but actually what's not addressed in our fragmented medical care is, and, and by specialty body part, is the way in which the hormones produced by men's testicles and women's ovaries actually play a role in hundreds of functions in our body that go way beyond sex. You know, you hear about testosterone, low T, men with erectile dysfunction and low sex drive, get your testosterone. They don't talk about the fact that low testosterone in men increases the risk of diabetes and heart disease and stroke and dementia and depression and even prostate cancer occurs in older men with low testosterone, not men taking testosterone. And the same is true with, with estrogen. As estrogen declines, women's medical problems start to skyrocket from bone loss to heart disease to obesity, diabetes, again, depression, dementia, stroke. All of these problems are related to 
loss of these critical metabolically active hormones. And, and I've often said, you know, we in medicine ignore the way God designed our bodies because it says in Genesis 1.27, I created male and I created female and our biology is different. And we don't take that into account. Well, what, what actually unfolded, and I'll come back to how I got into treating COVID, but the, what unfolded with the COVID pandemic early on was that we saw that men were dying at much higher rates. This came out of Italy very, very early. Men were dying at higher rates than women. And yet hardly anyone was talking about the gender differences in our hormone makeup which contribute to why males had a higher risk of death from COVID than women of the same age. So there are major differences in how estrogen affects the immune system. And women tend to have a more robust immune system than men do, which, which makes sense given our roles as the, um, the women become pregnant, women carry on the the human life cycle with pregnancy and and babies and we our immune system has to deal with the foreign protein of of the baby developing so it's not surprising that women have different immune functions than men so so that was an early little clue but what happened in january february 2020 was all of a sudden, we were hearing about this virus that was spread around the world and that people were, were dying abruptly of this acute respiratory syndrome. And I started looking into it for several reasons. Obviously, I was concerned for my patients. I was concerned about well, what, what kind of risk do, do we face as individuals wandering around doing our day-to-day -day business. And the more that, that I looked into it and what I was reading, a lot of it was coming out early on on Twitter with doctors from Italy, for example, where, where they really were hit hard. And that has to do with the population demographics in normal Northern Italy. We had spent some time there for some of my medical conferences and Northern Italy has a large percentage of Chinese immigrants who work in the leather factories in Italy, many of which have been bought by the Chinese. They like the label made in Italy. And so they have the leather factories in Italy, but they are owned by Chinese. So there's actually probably about a, about a half a million uh, Chinese immigrants living in and around Milan, Italy. Well, Milan has flights daily from Wuhan, China, back and forth to Milan. So that was one of the problems that the traffic, international air traffic to and from Wuhan, China into Milan, Italy, was essentially spreading the virus rampantly through all of Northern Italy. And they, they were really hit hard. I was in contact with some Italian physicians that I've known over the years from my, my work that where some of the leaders in climacteric medicine are based in, in the Milan, Florence, Pisa area of Italy. So we, we began finding what the doctors were talking about early on from Italy 
and this is this is before most Americans had heard much about it, but they were talking about the massive inflammation. They were talking about blood clotting. I mean, the blood clotting reports in the lungs, microthrombi, came out of Italy extremely early in the pandemic. And there wasn't a lot of attention to that in the United States at first. And so people were puzzled, what's going on? Why are there's why is there so much of a problem? Now, the other the other reason that the Italians figured this out so early, they started doing autopsies of the COVID patients. And you may recall that autopsies were not being done in the US and in most of the European countries. In fact, WHO later issued an edict saying that you should not do autopsies, ostensibly because it might spread the virus. But I think we've come to see that that was another suppression of information. But the Italians had, had done enough autopsies quickly that they had figured out that it was a the virus and then the inflammation and then the blood clotting were the big problems. And then we started hearing reports of people in New York, for example, where they were putting patients on ventilators because they couldn't breathe, but that was then contributing to more damage and a higher death rate. So slowly people began figuring out and doctors sharing things around the world. I was part of a coalition of doctors that were sharing information, trying to, to determine what was going on. And about that time, I read an article and actually it, at the time, Twitter was a good source of information. They subsequently began censoring and suppressing the sharing of reliable medical information and to, to everyone's detriment. But at the beginning, I saw some reports coming from China and Korea that hydroxychloroquine was being used as an antiviral. And I looked it up in PubMed and lo and behold, Fauci's Journal of Virology had published a study in 2005 showing that hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine were potent antiviral agents against the SARS-CoV-1 virus, which had been released from China in 2002. And they showed that in very successful studies, cell cultures in 2003, published in 2005, that chloroquine and its sister drug, hydroxychloroquine, blocked the virus from attaching to the receptors on the surface of the cell and stopped the virus from multiplying in the cell. So the first two steps of an infection were blocking entry and blocking virus multiplying, which means then you don't spread it. And so by March 2020, I'd written my first editorial about the fact that governors had stepped in to block this medicine that we knew 20 years ago was working in wow. the SARS-CoV-1 virus. And the SARS-CoV-2 virus by that time had been sequenced and they showed that the genome was 
the same as the SARS-CoV-1 in 2002. So it was, it was not rocket science to figure out that we already had research studies to show why chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine worked really well early for this virus. And it wasn't rocket science to figure out that if we got, if we treated a viral illness early, we could prevent the damage that came with what was then, by then, by March, doctors had been describing the cytokine storm, the massive inflammatory damage. Dr. McCullough was already in contact with people in Italy by March and in April called the conference of the team of international specialists to start working on outpatient treatment combinations of medicines. And the Italians were very much involved in that process. Unbeknownst to me, I hadn't met Dr. McCullough at that point. I didn't meet him until July. So we're independently figuring out. Dr. Zelenko had put together some of these pieces of the puzzle. There were a number of other frontline doctors, Dr. Brian Tyson, Dr. Proctor in Texas, Robin Armstrong in Texas, Simone Gold, Stella Emanuel. There were a whole lot of independent doctors who at that time were not in communication with each other except seeing discussions on Twitter and putting pieces together. So we're all doing what doctors do, which is you have a problem with your patient. You're trying to take the best science you've got, the studies you have, put the pieces together, figure out what makes sense. Okay, we know the mechanism. We know how this medicine works. We know it's been safe for 65 years for rheumatoid and lupus and malaria Mm -hmm. used worldwide, safe for pregnancy. So we had 65 years of safety track record on hydroxychloroquine. We knew how it worked. NIH, CDC had shown the effectiveness of it 20 years ago. So, you know, it was at that point in many respects, it was, it was not difficult to figure out. We treat flu early with Tamiflu. We treat shingles early. We treat herpes early with antivirals. So why wouldn't we do the same for COVID? And so a lot of us, I just said, you know, my, my staff is looking at me like I'm nuts. And I'm saying, look, I realize this isn't my normal work, but I'm a physician. We figure things out when people have problems. And I'm not going to let patients die on my watch if I can do something to help them. And so that's what many of us started doing. I was one of of many that were just saying, no, we're not going to sit back and watch people die and send them home to get sicker and go to the hospital and have a 25% risk of dying once they get into the ICU. So that's really where it began. So, so tell me why, and maybe this is a whole topic for another discussion, but (laughs) why would, why is treatment or was treatment being suppressed by the, the government and the major media? I mean, tell me that. That doesn't make sense at all. Well, it, it absolutely does not make sense. We have never done that. And, and in fact, I, I, think it, I think it rises to the level of crimes against humanity that there was orchestrated absolute blockade 
of early treatment. It was a coordinated, orchestrated effort, and, and we now have a lot of proof of that, that the FDA, Rick Bright, who's a PhD, not a physician, was in charge of BARDA, and he was put in to BARDA after the 2016 election had been decided and President Trump had won that election, President Obama put Rick Bright in as head of BARDA in the FDA, and Rick Bright comes from a background of vaccine development and work with several of the um, vaccine manufacturers prior to coming back to the FDA in November 2016. And then fast forward to 2020, President Trump had been getting information from overseas from the countries where hydroxychloroquine was being used successfully to treat people early and keep them out of the hospital and reduce the deaths. And that was, at that time, China, India, South Korea, Turkey, Iran. China had even shipped millions of doses of hydroxychloroquine to both Iran and Turkey in the late fall of 2019. And that, again, was covered up in the U.S. But they knew that they knew it was working. So the fact that it was coordinated with what Rick Bright did at the FDA, and he later bragged about this, that he actually countermanded the orders from the President of the United States and the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Azar, who had directed that hydroxychloroquine be made available in pharmacies and doctor's offices and hospitals throughout the United States to help reduce the, the deaths by treating people early and making it available. We had something like 75 million doses in the national stockpile that were sitting there because it was blocked when Rick Bright issued the EUA in March, March 28th of 2020. He deliberately restricted hydroxychloroquine to use only in hospitals and recommended only on a clinical trial, which meant very few people got it and it was given at a time late in the illness when it didn't work. Nothing worked very well that late. It would be like end-stage cancer, terminal stage four cancer, and suddenly you're going to give the drugs that work at stage one. It, it, it's absolute medical insanity, and, it, and I think it's criminal. It caused deaths directly by, failure, by withholding treatment, which for any physician in practice, to knowingly do that would not only be a malpractice case, it could be criminal charges. So to have this done at the highest levels of government was just outrageous. And that didn't come to light for a little while. And then I wrote an editorial about it in April that was released nationally. Senator Johnson contacted me at the beginning of April and wanted to know what was going on that doctors were not prescribing the medicine that they had worked hard to get built up in the national stockpile. And so I told him that there had been a, apparently coordination from the FDA down through the state pharmacy boards and the state medical mm -hmm. boards and the governors. And there was a massive coordination of suppression of 
access to hydroxychloroquine. Governors restricted it in emergency orders, unheard of for politicians to restrict a doctor's medical practice. And then the pharmacy boards directed their pharmacists to withhold prescriptions, legal prescriptions that doctors had written after evaluating the patient. Pharmacists were refusing to dispense it. And medical boards were going after doctors that prescribed hydroxychloroquine for COVID when we've been using it day in and day out for 65 years for other medical conditions. And, you know, off-label, everybody, they, the media was making um, all of these wild accusations about off-label prescription is dangerous. That's just total baloney because doctors prescribe FDA-approved medicines off-label day in and day out, every day of our practice. In fact, it, an off-label use of existing medicines for new uses is about 20% of any given doctor's prescriptions. And, and it's, a, it's a huge way that we can help people when pharmaceutical companies understandably can't spend the billion dollars it takes to get through FDA approval for a new use of a medicine that's already approved. That's up to the doctor's clinical judgment. It always has been. And there's never been any prohibition about doctors saying, okay, here's how this medicine works. Here's what this patient has a problem with. Here's why I think it can help. We talk with the patient, we explain it, we go through informed consent and risk benefit, and the patient's given a choice. Would you like to try it? And most of the time they would like to try it because they'd like to feel better. And, and doctors do that every day. It's just unheard of. Well, the more that, that I began personally participating in the international groups, Dr. McCullough pulled together a consortium of international specialists from all fields of medicine. And there are about 500 doctors in that group. We've been exchanging email information and research updates every day. It's like drinking water from a fire hose. The, the information is coming in so fast. I've got, I've literally got about 15,000 emails in that box in just a short few months. Wow. As we exchanged information, that's how the doctors on the front line were getting out there and treating people, except employed physicians, people, physicians who are employed by these large health systems that are owned by hospitals. I personally have had many primary care doctors of my own patients tell me that they were banned from prescribing hydroxychloroquine mm -hmm. by their administrators. And they, they were pleased that I prescribed it. I'm independent. So I answer to God and I answer to my patients. And that's how I've practiced medicine since 1986. I do not answer to insurance companies. I don't answer to administrative people that have no medical training. I, I do the best I can for my patients and honor the oath of Hippocrates that says, our job is to do what is best for the patient to the best of our ability and judgment. 
We don't answer to the bean counters if you truly right. honor your oath of Hippocrates. But the employed physicians were in a real bind because it, the administrators with no medical training are telling them they can't prescribe for one disease, but they can prescribe the same medicine for other diseases, which has never happened in my knowledge in modern medicine. Nope. And and then they or they risk losing their job and their livelihood and their ability to take care of their families. It's a terrible, it's a terrible situation. And that was going across going on across the country. So as as things began to unfold, we began to find that not only was access to the these life-saving antiviral medicines and ivermectin now is become targeted the same way and suppressed. And not only was that happening in the United States, but it's even worse in many of the industrialized Western countries that coincidentally happen to be very lucrative markets for the vaccines. Hmm. So early treatment has been in an orchestrated campaign with punitive risk for doctors has been suppressed and blocked in all of the sophisticated, let's say G8 countries with robust economies. In third world countries where they are not a lucrative vaccine market, early treatment with hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, antibiotics, corticosteroids, anticoagulants, all of that has been going on successfully. In fact, many countries, particularly in Central America, some of the countries of South America, Asia, India, they've actually, the public health departments have actually prepared these home kits. And they send out medicines with public health people in these little packages for a treatment course. And people are treated at home. Their death rates have been much lower than ours, where we send people home to get sick and then go to the hospital and hope you can save them at that point. Wow. It's, you know, a year and a half ago, it would be hard to believe that this was happening. But exactly what you're saying, we got a letter from our State Board of Pharmacy talking about, you know, what is the appropriate, you know, um, use of hydroxychloroquine. And, you know, it wasn't for COVID. And so as, as pharmacists, you have to decide if you're going to, you know, dispense a prescription that a doctor writes a valid prescription um, and possibly save a patient's life, or if you're going to put your license on the line. Now I can say at our pharmacy, we never, we never dispensed any hydroxychloroquine just because we just didn't stock it. And that's not what we, we, we do. So, but, I got to tell you that it's really, really frightening when medical boards and pharmacy boards can basically tell, tell us what to do, what is best for our patients. I mean, that's very, very scary. And it's, it, it is happening. Well, most patients don't realize the majority of medical boards in the United States are run by lawyers, not doctors. There will be an, a lawyer who's the executive director of a state medical board or someone trained in administration, not a physician. And most medical boards don't even have a majority of physicians on the board serving as board members. And 
that is quite alarming because you have non-physicians making medical judgments about physicians' medical care of patients. Now, the, ostensibly, the purpose of the board was to protect the public safety, but you cannot argue that denying access to life-saving medicines is protecting the public safety. So the medical boards clearly, in and have at other times, but particularly it was quite egregious and very dangerous, slippery slope to totalitarianism when the medical boards are threatening reprisal and loss of license for doctors who are simply trying to do their best to save patients' lives. There is no harm. In fact, one of my colleagues, and, and he has spoken publicly about this. In fact, he's filed a federal lawsuit against the Oregon Medical Board for abuse of power, abuse of due process, and various other legal issues. They actually revoked his license, not for any medical harm to patients. In fact, he had successfully treated several, many, several hundred, I don't know the actual number, perhaps as many as a thousand or more COVID patients successfully and kept people out of the hospital and no one died under his care. He was, he lost his medical license because he refused to follow the governor's draconian mask order, which he said, and he proved it, had no medical basis in scientific studies to show effectiveness he had no infections in his practice, and the patients were all treated early and got better. So there was there was no issue of harm that came from his decision with his patient's agreement not to wear masks in his private office. Now, what will you educate us on the suppression of these treatments and emergency use authorization of vaccines. Is there any correlation? I don't think there's any question but what there's correlation because the emergency use authorization regulations at the FDA, which any person wanting to dig through the FDA website can find, it's not, it's, it's not difficult, it's just time consuming, but you can find the regulations on the FDA website that clearly state in order for an emergency use authorization to be issued for a new biological agent, medicine, vaccine, medical device even, uh, testing, for example, there has to be no alternative, no other effective treatment. And so it was by about the April-May timeframe when it became clear that there would be a vaccine developed quickly, that was when exactly the point where the suppression of hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, ivermectin, even attempts to block corticosteroids all ramped up in 
a almost simultaneous push on every front through hospital administrators, through health system administrators, insurance companies, pharmacies, medical boards, and governor's edicts. And that was happening in every G8 wealthy industrialized country that would be a vaccine market. Okay, now let's go back on that because you talk about the third world countries use hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. They had these little packets they give out. And obviously there has something to do with finances here. So tell us why the G8 countries um, are using vaccines and the other non-developed countries are not. Will you kind of go into that? Well, I, I think that just the simple answer to that is the wealthy countries have the money to pay for the vaccines. The poorer countries typically do not. And they are not seen. The third world countries with less economic advantage are not seen by the vaccine manufacturers and the stakeholders. Now, the stakeholders, when we use that term, and, and Dr. McCullough talks about this a lot in his editorials and his interviews, the stakeholders are not just the vaccine manufacturers. It includes the government agencies that have stakeholding position in the patents. FDA, CDC, NIH, some universities that engage in the research that facilitates and supports the pharmaceutical company research. They are partners in the process. Bill Gates Foundation, for example, actually owns patents on some of the vaccine components. And that's been widely known for many, many years that the Gates Foundation is actively involved in vaccine development. In fact, there's there have been a lot of scandals about that as well. And, and that's beyond the scope of this discussion. But the point is that while it is presented to the public that the Gates Foundation is engaged in philanthropy, what most people don't know is that the Gates Foundation actually owns patents, which means that they get paid patent royalties just like NIH does. Anthony Fauci's name is as an employee of NIH is on a number of the patents. People can look up the patent records and you will see the names of individual government employees who are contributing to the research are named as having interest, financial interest in the patents on the products they are developing. So there, there are many stakeholders here, not just, and the public doesn't realize that, it goes way beyond just big pharma making a lot of money. It, it's government agencies and government employees who are legally allowed. That's that's true in university research. A lot of times universities will partner with businesses to do research to develop new products. And the researchers that are involved have the right to some return on their intellectual property that they help create. There's nothing wrong with that model. There, what, what's wrong is that it's not disclosed to the public and the public is not being given the information 
about why they can't get access to early treatment as part of the agenda to push them into the vaccine, which does make more money than a generic hydroxychloroquine. I think Senator Johnson did the calculations. He's an accountant uh, by formal training. He did the calculations. It costs like seven cents to manufacture a hydroxychloroquine tablet. Right. Yeah. Versus $35 for a course of treatment of remdesivir in the hospital. And I don't know, I don't know offhand the cost of Regeneron monoclonal antibodies. But the point is, there's a lot more money to be made on the fancy new therapeutics and the vaccines than the old generic drugs that are being repurposed for a new use and are very successful at that. As always, follow the money, right? Right. <laughs> so speaking of Anthony Fauci, um, he's been in the news a lot lately. I, I guess some of his emails are being uncovered. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you have any comments about that? I think it's about time that some of the true history of Anthony Fauci is coming to light for the American people. Those of us that are a little older in medicine and have been around a little longer know the tragic story of Anthony Fauci's blockade of some of the effective treatments for AIDS patients that cost a lot of lives at that time when the AIDS pandemic first came on the scene. I remember that from the beginning of of my practice career. That was one of the first really big things that hit us that we didn't know how to treat. And the AIDS activists, there have actually been some documentaries and books written about this. The AIDS activists were just outraged because as part of the treatment of AIDS, they found that pneumocystis pneumonia was one of the causes of death. And there were older effective antibiotics that could treat that. And the Fauci was part of the blockade on access to that for AIDS patients, pushing again to develop a vaccine, which they never succeeded in developing for the AIDS virus. It's always been a multi-drug cocktail for both AIDS and, and even hepatitis, where we've had a viral illness that was not amenable to, uh, particularly in AIDS, a vaccine. And so it was a multi-drug cocktail. Well, that's what we're doing with COVID is a multi-drug sequenced combination of medications targeted to the stage of the disease. Well, and speaking of HIV vaccine not being effective, um, I think it's largely because HIV mutates, right? There's many different mutations that are in the body. So I wonder how effective um, a COVID-19 vaccine is. Well, that, that's part of the picture with the AIDS virus. And, and I am not an AIDS specialist, nor am I a vaccine specialist. But part of the problem with the AIDS virus had to do with getting the technology to work properly in the, in the ways that vaccines work with a virus that was as unique as the AIDS virus. So the technology they never really were successful at working that out. And with the COVID virus, we had, there's a lot being made about the variants 
right now, right. which seems to serve the purpose of ginning up fear to push people to get vaccinated out of fear and to do so voluntarily. I think they know they're not going to be able to uphold vaccine mandates because it's illegal to mandate an experimental agent. That's been true for the entire time that the FDA has been in existence. It's been true in medical ethics for since the founding of the art and science of medicine. And it's been true since World War II when the Nazi war crimes came to light with experimentation on human prisoners. And the Nuremberg Code ever since World War II and the Nuremberg trials has, has codified the fact that you cannot experiment on humans without informed consent. So I, I think they know that they're not going to be successful in enforcing the mandates, but the threat of the mandate mm -hmm. is generating enough fear that people are rushing to get the vaccine without actually having a formal discussion with their doctor about the risk and the benefits. Let's talk about that a little bit. So let's say it does the vaccine becomes formally approved by the FDA and it's not an emergency use authorization anymore. It's formally approved. Can there be a mandate? Has there been any history where that can be a mandate then now because it's formally approved? Is that kind of what, where you're going with that? If if it's not experimental and it's it's approved, can they mandate it? Well, I, I think certainly they can. Um, we've seen that the government out of control can do anything it wants. Hmm. So, um, we've seen a lot of the violation of normal FDA regulatory practices. I, I mean, we've seen a lot of actions by our government agencies through this pandemic, which do not comply with existing regulations, existing law, and I mean, just simply something as, as simple as governors issuing an edict that doctors can't prescribe hydroxychloroquine for COVID, but they can for everything else that it's used for. That's a violation of the medical practice acts that have made it quite clear that doctors should be, uh, are allowed under the law to prescribe properly for their patients based upon their medical judgment. Now, if they cause harm, there are mechanisms right. to deal with that. But but for governors to interfere is clearly a violation of the existing rules and regulations that govern the practice of medicine. They ignored it. So they've ignored a lot of law. And the question is, will they succeed in pushing the mandates, which are clear constitutional violations, and there are many constitutional lawyers that have spoken out on this, and there are lawsuits. There, are, uh, I'm aware of at least a half a dozen lawsuits that are in the process of being filed against CDC, NIH, FDA, um, state governors, as well as the Department of Health and Human Services. So, uh, all of the the legal front is building and. The European Coalition of Doctors and Attorneys have already begun proceedings in the international court to start a Nuremberg 2.0 investigation into crimes against humanity for the suppression of early treatment and withholding 
risk information on the experimental vaccines. So there, there's a lot underway on the legal front. And I think we're going to see in the next month or two, a lot of news on that. So what they could do um, is anyone's guess. If the government is choosing to ignore the rule of law, then anything is possible. And I that's why many of us have been speaking out and saying, the public better wake up and get loud. And for example, America Out Loud platform, where I do a, a regular radio show as part of Team Nation on Voice of a Nation, which is Malcolm Out Loud's signature show. He has a group of us um, participating in that as Team Nation. And I've been doing a weekly two-hour show on all of these subjects for quite some time, working closely with Malcolm. And we basically are saying constantly, it's time to get loud. It's time to get involved. Speak out. If you don't speak up, you are going to be facing loss of the rights that you've held dear for your whole life. So as how, how do we speak up? How, how does an individual person that is not in the medical field speak up? And how do we that are in the medical field, what's the best way for us to speak up? Well, I, I think absolutely people need to be constantly writing, email, and calling their legislative representatives in this, at the state level, at the federal level. And I think the people... Uh, it would be helpful for people to write letters to the editor of the local newspapers and for people to start speaking up in the churches. We're, we're starting, I have reactivated the charitable foundation that my husband and I created in 2007 and was approved by the IRS in 2008, shortly before the economic crash of 2008. So the foundation clearly was not in a good economic environment to get off the ground at that time. I have just in May re reactivated the foundation Truth for Health, and we will have our new website up and running shortly. But the Truth for Health Foundation is focusing on outreach on medically sound research-based educational information and treatment options, reaching out through churches and community groups to help people know the reliable information about what is available for early treatment, what's available for immune support through lifestyle changes, through healthy eating, prayer, meditation, exercise, proper supplement use, what are some of the um, over-the-counter supplements, for example, that have antiviral benefits, vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, and acetylcysteine. And now here's another ominous event just in the last couple of weeks. It's well known how acetylcysteine as a supplement works as an antiviral effect with the spike protein of the coronavirus. It actually helps to prevent some of the spike protein damage from the coronavirus. So suddenly, again, tied in with the mass vaccination push, the FDA is moving to take N-acetylcysteine out of the over-the-counter market 
and make it prescription only. Again, decreasing access to something that works in a planned effort to prevent consumers from having access to what helps them. This, I'm sorry, I just have to call it what it is. That is truly evil intent. When you knowingly remove a supplement that has been safe and on the market for ages and you know it works and you're taking it away from people. If I, you know, if your consumers out there listening to this program could do anything right now, they ought to be rising up in outrage against the FDA and against the federal officials that are allowing quercetin and acetylcysteine to be removed by the FDA from over-the-counter access for people to choose to use it if they wish. You know, thank you for educating us on that, Dr. Lee. Um, I've seen a lot of reports about that going through, and I never even put two and two together, but that's exactly why all of a sudden NAC and other supplements are being looked at by the FDA because they're being used to treat COVID. So now all of a sudden they're on the hit list. And of course they go back to some kind of ruling back in the 1950s of why NAC should be a prescription, but now it really comes to light. Thank you for educating me on that and our listeners and viewers. I appreciate it. Wow. And rally your listeners and your database of people if people don't start standing up and speaking out and writing letters and demanding access, it was always the grassroots that made a difference. It was the grassroots that got acupuncture approved by many insurance carriers. Doctors weren't able to accomplish that on their own. It's the grassroots. It's the grassroots that lobbied against excess regulation of supplements. So you can argue that's a good and a bad thing. Everything's a double-edged sword. But the point is, it was the grassroots that lobbied and got that accomplished so that people could choose what supplements they wanted to take. And it's the grassroots that has lobbied for many improvements in access. And if we don't get the grassroots getting out of their fear-based mindset that you do nothing until you get a dangerous vaccine that is skyrocketing long-term damage, blood clots, neurologic damage, some of the paralysis syndromes that are occurring. We've never had a vaccine that crossed the blood-brain barrier and suddenly this new technology is designed to cross the placental barrier and affect the developing baby and cross the blood-brain barrier and cause inflammation throughout the nervous system. It shouldn't take a rocket scientist to see that that's potentially dangerous. Okay? Well, what what great conversation, Dr. Lee. And I know uh, as we, I know you're busy and you have to go shortly. Um, as we wind up this uh, show, what what are your parting words in 30 seconds about what you want consumers to know about this COVID pandemic? Or let me rephrase let me rephrase that. The government response to a COVID pandemic. Well, the, the government agency responses have been a disaster, and it's time for people to take their care into their own hands. Go to www.covidpatientguide.com. 
I was one of the authors of the, the patient guide booklet. We took Dr. Peter McCullough's peer-reviewed published medical studies and put it into layman's language in a guide that says, here's what COVID is, here are the stages, here are the medicines that work, here are the doses that work, here are the telemedicine resources. If your doctor doesn't treat it, here are the telemedicine resources. Pick up the phone, schedule a consult, get the treatment, stay out of the hospital, and then do everything you can do to stay healthy. And then for people who'd like more updates on that, I have updates on my website, which is www.vivelifecenter.com. And there is a coronavirus update that people can go to for articles and interviews. In addition, go to c19protocols.com. That is a website that accumulates the many different treatment protocols that are in use for COVID. Learn about the options and then speak out and demand through your government officials that you have access to the medicines that can save your life. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for that. Um, we will definitely put that all in the show notes when we have this episode edited. And so it'll be easy for patients to find it because we really, really, our goal of this podcast is to educate and empower consumers to take charge of their own health. And I think over this last hour, Dr. Lee, you have definitely helped get that point across. So I really, really appreciate it. You are definitely an expert, not only in hormones, but in COVID and early treatment. And I appreciate you being on today. I definitely want to have you on our show again. I would love to talk about hormones. Um, it's what we do a lot at our pharmacy. and I'd love to talk to you about hormones sometimes. So thank you for being on. And um, we will We'll chat later. You've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Uh, tune in Monday for our show, 1230 to 1.30. As always, don't miss out. Thank you for tuning in. Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Yeah.